morning. It's good to see all of you here. And as the first service celebrated, we want to celebrate too. It's two Sundays in a row that we've been able to come to church and it's not been raining. Man, that's fantastic. I don't know how you guys are excited about that as I am, but it's been really, really nice. We are excited to have you with us this morning. Thank you for coming, joining us for worship here at Ivy Creek. We appreciate you being here. If you are new to Ivy Creek or you kind of coming back in uh, after being gone for a little while, we're still in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, we continue to study through Mark's Gospel. In fact, we're going to find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 12. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and get those out and turn uh, with us to Mark chapter 12. We are looking through this uh, book a paragraph at a time and verse by verse. And this morning we're going to be at looking at verses 35 through 37. And while you're turning to that part, I thought I would just see just how awake you guys are. I tested the first service and and I'm going to see if you can do a little bit better than they did, okay? I've got a, I've got a riddle I want to ask you and see if you can figure it out. What begins with the letter E, ends with the letter E, and has one letter in it? An envelope. All right, I'm going to give you another chance. So far, the first service is winning. What travels all over the world She just got it. I should send these to you in advance, Deanna. What travels all over the world but remains in its own corner? A stamp. Very good. Will gets a point for that one. That one's actually really good. A stamp. I'm going to give the rest of you one more. These are just examples of some riddles. What begins with a P, ends with an E, and has thousands of letters in it? Post office. See, actually, I think you guys won. I think of the two services you guys won. Give yourselves a hand. That's pretty good. Those are just for fun. I just wanted to give you a few riddles to kind of get your mind thinking about what riddles are. You know, you know what a riddle is, right? A riddle is, is, is really, it's a question, but, but it's, it's a statement. It's a mystifying or puzzling question that's posed as a problem that needs to be solved or guessed. It's not something that's just so easily understood. Another definition of a riddle is, is something, it's a question or a statement that requires ingenuity in discovering the answer. Now, the reason that I started with that and, 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 and to kind of get us to thinking is because sometimes riddles are, are challenging. Sometimes they cause us to, uh, to really question the things that we uh, assume to be given in a situation. And what we're going to see today in this text from Mark chapter 12, verses 35 through 37, is that Jesus poses a riddle. And he does it based upon a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament. Now, the setting of this... Um, as we know from the setting of Mark chapter 12 is, is Jesus is still in the temple. He's been there now and, and over the last couple of days. In fact, this, this probably takes place on Tuesday of the final week of Jesus' life before he's crucified. You remember what happened on Monday. He went into the temple and we found that he turned some tables over. He turned them over by the, the, the tables of the merchants and those who were exchanging money. Well, this is Tuesday, the very next day, and here we see that he is turning some tables again, only this time he's doing it metaphorically. And the reason I say that is because previously what we've seen is that Jesus has been interrogated. 
There's been three different groups who've come to interrogate him in the temple that we've looked at over the last few weeks. The first group was the Herodians and the Pharisees who came to him to interrogate him, to catch him and to trap him in his words with regard to this question. Should the Jews pay taxes to Caesar? You remember he answered their question, but immediately on the backside of their question came the Sadducees. And the Sadducees came along and they intended to discredit him in the eyes of those to whom he was teaching by asking him about the resurrection. And they intended to make it look like that was just an implausible thing. And so he, he answers their question. And then the last week we noticed that there was a scribe who came to Jesus. And the scribe had one question. And he wanted to know what is the greatest or the weightiest or the most important commandment. And what we've seen is that Jesus has answered every single one of these questions. He's, he's stood up to those who have come to interrogate him, to trap him, and to, and to discredit him, and to try to catch him in his words. And Jesus has done that, but what he does here is he turns the tables on all of them. He turns the tables, but now it's his time to be the interrogator. Now it's his turn to be the one who is able to ask the question. And in his gospel account, we see that Matthew tells us, Matthew tells us that Jesus asked the question of the Pharisees. Mark just simply tells us that he asks this question of those to whom he taught. So what that lets us know is that those to whom Jesus is speaking, it's a mixed bag of people. It's those that are coming after him, those who oppose him, and even those who are following him. And what we'll see is that Jesus points us back to an Old Testament psalm, to a passage written by King David, a passage that was understood to be messianic. In other words, it was a passage that prophesied about the coming Messiah. And what Jesus does is takes this, he takes this psalm and then he asks a riddle. He wants to know a question based upon what David wrote about the Messiah. He wants his audience to ponder the significance of what David writes. And what I want you to know, it's not just an important issue for those that were standing around him 2,000 years ago. The psalm that he asked, the, the riddle that he poses is an important riddle for us to grapple with and to wrestle with and to ponder on this morning. So with all that as a setup, let's look at verse 35 through 37. Hear what the word of God says. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. This is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we have this opportunity to gather together as your people to open your book that has been given to us by your divine Holy Spirit to explain to us who you are and who we are. My prayer this morning is that we would be attentive to your word and that we would listen to it, that we would, you would enable us to, to push out the distractions of our previous week and the distractions of things that we are concerned about coming up in the next week. And, and Father, that we might be able to just for a few minutes this morning concentrate on what you would have us to learn. I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, just conform us in the image of your Son, Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I think if we're going to understand this passage and truly get to the meat of what Jesus is, is communicating in this passage, we need to make sure that we understand the riddle. 
And to do that, I'm going to ask you to do me a favor, to aid and assist me in being able to, to help us understand that. I'm going to ask if you just kind of hold your finger there, but turn back to the psalm that Jesus is actually quoting here in, in Mark 12. Turn back to Psalm 110. If you go back to Psalm 110, the very first verse is the verse that Jesus quotes here in Mark 12. And I just want you to see it in your English versions there as I read it to you. Psalm 110, verse 1, the Bible says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, if you'll look just above that verse, you should see an inscription there that says, A Psalm of David. And so what we know is that Psalm 110 was written by David. And when David writes it, he describes a, a conversation that is taking place, a dialogue that is occurring. And what he says is that this dialogue occurs between two individuals, both of whom, if you'll see in your English translations, are named Lord. And so the real issue with Psalm 110 verse 1 is trying to distinguish exactly who is it that is having this conversation. Now, to determine the identity of these two individuals, the English translations have helped us some. You'll notice that the very first Lord that you see there in your English translation is all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. The reason that that is, is, is printed that way is because this title is, is there to show us that the name that was used in the Hebrew Old Testament was the divine name of God. The name Yahweh, the name that is often we refer to as Jehovah God. It is the, the sovereign God of, of all the universe. This is his divine name. And so whenever you come across those capital L-O-R-Ds in your text, it is a reference to the divine name of God, to Yahweh, God the Father. But then if you move on down, you'll see that the next Lord in that same verse is not all caps. In English, we would pronounce it the same way. It's still Lord, but it's not the same word in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, the word there is the, is, is the, the title Adonai. And we often refer to that as a, as a title to Lord in the Old Testament. But it really, that word Adonai is, in the Hebrew is a, a term for any person who can be a Lord, anybody who has lordship over another. But we know specifically here in Psalm 110 that the term Adonai is being used of the Christ of the coming Messiah because of the context of the rest of the psalm. The rest of the psalm goes on to describe how God the Father says that he will exalt the Messiah to the throne and how he will rule over all of the earth. And so really what we begin to understand, if we understand what the Hebrew says and how the English is, our translations are trying to communicate to us, what we can come back to is that Psalm 110, verse 1, David is repeating a dialogue between God Almighty and the coming Christ. And he is saying something like this. He is saying, the Lord God says to my Lord the Messiah, sit on my throne, rule from my throne, rule all of the earth from my throne. Now, we need to understand that context and to go into that detail on purpose because when we get back to Mark chapter 12, when we get back to the text that we're looking at today, what we begin to see is that down in verse 37, Jesus wants his hearers to ponder that if, if this Messiah 
is supposed to be David's son. If the Christ is also supposed to be a descendant of David, as verse 35 makes clear, then how could David's son also be described as his Adonai? How could, it be, how could he be described as his Lord? You see, fathers didn't look at their sons or their grandsons or their great-grandsons and call them Lord. No patriarch would do that. Furthermore, no monarch would do that. Remember, these words are written by King David. In fact, no, uh, until a king passes away, his son only is a prince. The prince doesn't become king until the seated king dies. And so David is still here. He's ruling, and yet he's calling someone who will come after him by a title that means that that person is greater than he is. And this is exactly what Jesus wants to bring out. How could, how could the Messiah... How could the Christ be the son of David and yet be greater than David? That's the riddle. And what I want you to know is in attempting to come up with the answer to that riddle or, or causing, it's not as if Jesus created this. It's been in Psalm 110 all along, but it's as if no one had ever truly pondered it before. And Jesus wants us to ponder it. And I want you to notice there's some significance that we need to draw from what it is that this psalm says. And the first significance I want you to note is on your outline this morning. This is a riddle with biblical significance. It is a riddle with biblical significance. The fact that the Messiah would be the son of David is, and, and that he would be a literal descendant from David's bloodline was something that had been foretold again and again and again in Scripture. In fact, there are so many different passages. I won't try to give you all of them, but I want to give you a few that you can go back and look up for yourself as well. 2 Samuel 7 verse 16 tells us this. The God spoke through the prophet Nathan to David and he said this. He says, your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that didn't mean that David was going to live forever. It meant that his throne would exist forever and that there would be somebody, a descendant of his, sitting on that throne forever. You find something similar in Psalm chapter 89, verses 3 and 4. There you find that God speaks again and he says this, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David, your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Once again, God is saying the throne of David will always be there and somebody will will be on that throne who is his descendant. And then, then you have the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, who, says, who declares that the coming Messiah would reign on David's throne. You have Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5, and Jeremiah 33, verse 15, in which the prophet there says that the Lord will raise up for David a righteous branch. Those passages, among many, many others in the Old Testament, continue to point us to the fact that the, the Jews had placed their hope in a coming Messiah who would be a physical descendant of King David. And why was that such an important deal? Well, David was Israel's most illustrious king. R.C. Sproul writes this, that he was a shepherd, a poet, a warrior, and a brilliant administrator. He extended the boundaries of the nation. He was the greatest military genius in Israel's history. He had developed one of the finest public works programs of any king who ever ruled over the Jewish people. And therefore, the Jews regarded David 
as the golden age. The reign of David was regarded as the golden age of Israel. But by the time of Christ that we see here, Israel was only a shell of what it had once been. In fact, in fact, the nation was in such decay that it was being ruled over by the Gentile Romans, those hated Romans ruled over them. And the hearts of the people, they longed for the restoration of David's house. They longed for the restoration of David's kingdom. They longed for the restoration of those golden years that they had once known. And so consequently, what we see is that generation after generation, people had pinned their hopes on the coming Messiah who would be one of David's descendants. And what that tells us is that based upon numerous prophetic passages of the Old Testament, they believed that the Messiah would truly be of the lineage of David. He would be the son of David. And so that tells us that this riddle has biblical significance. It drives us back to that which the Holy Spirit had revealed in, in hundreds and hundreds of years before to let us know the significance of Christ being the son of David. And then that points us to the very next point that I want you to see. The, the, it's not only a, a riddle with biblical significance, but it is also a riddle with theological significance. This is a riddle with theological significance. What's important to note is that Jesus wasn't doing something sleight of hand here. It wasn't like he had those three little cups, you know, and you put a ball underneath one of the cups and then you have the guy that can move stuff around real fast and, and you try to think that you know which one it is and he opens it up it's not there. Jesus is not doing that. He's actually just exposing what David had written all those years before and going, have you ever grappled with what the truth of he said? Have you ever thought about this from, from a realistic sense? And have you ever tried to consider the fact that, that there's something theological going on here? Think about this. How could David be privy to a conversation, to a dialogue that takes place between Yahweh the sovereign God of heaven, the Lord God Almighty, and the Messiah who would ultimately be David's descendant. How is it possible that David could actually understand or know about that conversation taking place? Well, what we come to grips with is that if we just deal with what we assume and with what is right there on the paper, it doesn't make sense. And what that means is the Messiah could only be David's son and he could only be David's son and the Messiah, David's Lord, if he was something other than just a mere human. He couldn't just be a mere son of David and actually David be able to hear this conversation take place. In fact, you see, if the Messiah was merely a man, the psalm would make no sense at all. Consequently, it would take a divine human. It would take a God-man to be able to be the one who would fulfill the scriptural requirements of the Messiah. James Boyce explains it this way. He says, if David called his natural physical descendant his Lord, it could only be because the one to come would somehow be greater than David was. And the only way that that could happen is if the Messiah were more than a mere man, he would have to be a divine Messiah. That is, he would have to be God. Remember I told you, riddles, riddles require some brain power. Riddles require some wrestling and some work. And so we're doing the, ne the necessary work right now to come to the grips with exactly, so why is that important? Why is the fact that Jesus is the God-man, what difference does that make? What purpose does that serve for us? 
Well, what we begin to know is that as, as the scriptures go on to reveal, this riddle unlocks for us the mystery of the incarnation. What it tells us is that Jesus is both human and divine. He, we know from Matthew's genealogies and from Luke, Luke's genealogies that he was born to David, that he can tra they traced his lineage back to David, so they know that he is the son of David. But we also know that because of his supernatural conception and, and because of his, his miraculous virgin birth, we know that he was also God. And in fact, as John tells us in John chapter 1, in the first three verses of that chapter, he tells us just how divine he was, calling him the Word. There we see that, that, that John calls him in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he said, and he was in the beginning with God, and all things were made by him and through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. So what that tells us is that though he was David's son, he was also David's creator. And here is where that makes, this is where that really becomes important. To recognize that Jesus had dual nature. That he could, he could at one and the same time lay his hand on the Godhead and lay his hand on humanity becomes very important to you and I. Because as a man, we recognize that he is like us in our humanity. He's fully human just as we are. He has been tempted. He was tempted in every way you and I have ever been tempted. He was tempted to lie, to steal, to cheat, to take shortcuts, to do things other than the will of God. He was, take, he was tempted in all of those ways that you and I have been tempted, and yet, the Bible tells us, he never sinned not one time. He lived a perfect, sinless, holy life, the life that you and I should live but never have. Jesus came and lived it. That's why it's important that he's fully human. It's important that he's fully God because being fully God, he not only is one who can identify with us in our sin, as God, he is the one who has the authority to save us from our sin. How does he do that? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, he gives us a hint by what he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. Because there we find out just what the benefits of Christ having both the the nature of, of, of God and the nature of man, he says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, the benefit of, of Christ's dual nature for you and for me is that we now have somebody who represents us to God and somebody who represents God to us. We have somebody who can, who can come between us and do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Someone who had contact with both. As Alistair McGrath has written, the central Christian idea of the incarnation, which expresses the belief that Jesus is both God and man, divine and human, portrays Jesus as the perfect mediator between God and human beings. He, and he alone, is able to redeem us and reconcile us to God. As I said, as a human, he became one in order to save us. As God, he possesses the divine power and authority to save us. So, this riddle is significant. It's significant because it points us back to the authority of Scripture and the prophecies that are there. So it's biblically significant. But it's also theologically significant because it points us to the fact that Jesus was both God and human. And that leads us then to the third significance that this riddle opens up for us. It is a riddle with eternal significance. A riddle with eternal 
significance. I want you to notice that when Jesus quotes David's psalm, he includes the part in which Yahweh says to the Messiah, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now, why is that part important? Well, remember that God is speaking to his son, and what he says is that he will be exalted to his royal throne. In other words, David is saying that once the Messiah had completed his work in the world and he had done everything that the Father had sent him to do, he would then exalt, be exalted to heaven and be enthroned at the right hand of God. Now, it's important to know that anytime you have the, the seating, especially in the ancient world, to sit at a person's right hand was to occupy a place, in, a place of honor. But to sit at the king's right hand, well, that was more than a mere honor. That meant that you were going to share in his rule. It signified participation in the royal dignity, in the royal power. And none of this was lost on, on Jesus' audience. They all understood completely what that meant. They understood the magnitude of what David had written. And though this, it, this truly was a, a, a veiled self-enunciation by Jesus that he was the Messiah, it was, a, it was an enunciation nonetheless, and it brought Jesus even further into the crosshairs of his opponents. In fact, just a couple of chapters later, when we get to Mark chapter 14, what we'll learn is that that chapter actually covers the events that were taking place on the final week of Jesus' life on like that Thursday into Friday. And, and what we recognize is that though here in chapter 12, the common people heard Jesus gladly when he talked about Psalm 110, what we see is that in Mark 14, nobody's hearing him gladly at this point. In fact, he's standing trial before the Sanhedrin. The chief priest has got him and he's interrogating him and he's peppering him with questions. And he's getting really frustrated with Jesus because Jesus won't answer any of his questions. And finally, in his exasperation, the chief priest just blurts out, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In other words, he wants to know, are you the one? Do you identify yourself as the one whom the scriptures say will come? Are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers very clearly in Mark chapter 14, verse 62. Listen to what he says. I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. You see what Jesus does there in Mark 14? He actually refers again back to what David had written in Psalm 110. And he gives us proof. One day you're going to see me, and when you do, you will know what I have been saying is true. And I will be seated at the right hand of the Father until such a time that God puts all of my enemies under his feet. He is simply claiming Psalm 110 for himself. And that didn't go unnoticed because it says next, the chief priest then tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. From there we know Jesus was cruelly beaten, executed. We know that he was treated as a criminal. He was mocked. He was despised. All of these things happened to him. But the scriptures go on to tell us just as David prophesied, God raised Jesus from the dead. And then he ascended to the heavens where now he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what's important to note is that Jesus used Psalm 110 as a way of, de of declaring his deity 
and his humanity and the reason why he came. And it didn't go unnoticed by his disciples because you know what wound up happening? In the New Testament, there is not another psalm that is quoted more than Psalm 110. In fact, it's quite possible that in the New Testament, there is not an older, an, another Old Testament passage quoted more than this Old Testament passage in Psalm 110. Depending on who you read, there's at least 27 different references to Psalm 110 in the New Testament, and as many as 33. The, one of the most significant ones took place just a few weeks after this event took place, when on the, on, um, at the time when, when uh, the, the Pentecost was taking place, Peter stood up. He quoted Psalm 110, said, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then in verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, we read, he says this, Therefore let all the house of Israel know, that, know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Later, the Apostle Paul used Psalm 110 in 1 Corinthians 15 to prove that because Jesus has been raised from the dead, you and I will one day have the hope of being raised from the dead. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews used Psalm 110 as a reason to explain why Jesus was superior than the angels. And then again in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14, he used Psalm 110 as the reason to say that because of Jesus' perfect sacrifice, he has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father. And because that is the case, we can be assured that he will one day perfect us, those whom he is sanctifying. What all that tells us is that right now, based upon this passage and upon the further teaching of Scripture, Jesus is right now sitting at the right hand of the Father. And from that position, he is ruling over all of heaven and all of earth. And God has done this. He has been the one who has exalted Jesus to this position and seated him there. And therefore, it is imperative for us to understand that it is not a matter of whether Jesus will be Lord or not. He is Lord because God has made him Lord. And here's where it applies to you and I, and I go back to the passage that I keep quoting to you about every single week from Philippians chapter 2. Why is important is this. God has highly exalted Jesus and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, let me say it to you one more time. It is not a matter of if Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. Therefore, as one has written, we can fight Jesus' lordship and we can be broken by it or we can submit to it and submit to his rule and his humble obedience with praise. We can say it this way, we can refuse to humble ourselves before him and one day ultimately end up underneath his feet or we can humble ourselves and be exalted by him in due time. Either way, we will eventually bow to the Lordship of Christ. And therein lies the eternal significance of this riddle. You see, for those of us who refuse to submit to Christ's Lordship in this life, well, the Bible says that those will face eternity without hope and without God. The refusal to bow to Christ's Lordship and to remain proud and indignant in the face of His offer of grace will ultimately result in eternal punishment in hell. 
unforgiven and unredeemed. However, to bow to him, to acknowledge that he is not simply a baby in a manger, nor is he just simply a man who died on a cross, but rather that he was a man who died on the cross for our sins and that God exalted him by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand of the Father to, to bow before that man, that God-man, is to receive forgiveness. To bow before him is to receive, is to receive favor. And such a person will be forgiven of their sins and granted eternal life in heaven where the Bible says that we will one day rule and reign with him. All of that then, looking back at the biblical significance, the theological significance, and the eternal significance then leads me to my sermon in a sentence this morning, which is this. As David's son and God's son, both human and divine, Jesus is the Messiah sent to be our Savior who must not only be David's Lord, but yours and mine as well. The question is simply this, is he your Lord? Have you repented of your sins and placed your trust in him? I want you to know concerning the Lordship of Christ and his identity, I was drawn back to something that the author, Christian author C.S. Lewis penned in his epic work, Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher he would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. Lewis goes on to say, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being merely a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Listen, friend, because Jesus is who he claimed to be, then there is no reasonable option available to you other than your complete and total allegiance to him. There is no other way to receive forgiveness of your sins. There is no other way to receive heaven's joys. There is no other way to avoid hell's punishment than through this God-man, Jesus Christ. Since he is the eternal son of God who became a man to achieve your salvation, you ought to heed the demand of the gospel and his call for repentance and faith. And you ought to come and pick up your cross and follow him. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning.